You may be seated and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We'll continue our uh, series on chapter 5 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll call this Radical Obedience today. We'll take this next little section. We've got one more after this to finish up chapter 5. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue you at law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks, and from him that would borrow of you, turn not away. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful. We have the very words of life. Thank you. And thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to see that these are eternal words, the words of life, spoken by the Messiah to us, to to save us. I just pray, Lord, you would bless your words today to help continue to feed our souls through this blessed union with Christ, continue to transform our character and to make us more like this beautiful, glorious Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the fifth time that Jesus is correcting a misinterpretation of their reading of the law. And just to kind of remind you of the overall theme, y'all know the theme. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the question every time you sit in preaching is this. Am I in the kingdom? Am I in the kingdom? How do I know? Well, the Word comes to help instruct you on what this supernatural life looks like in the kingdom so that we can examine ourselves and we can continue to press on into this kingdom. Exceeding righteousness. What is that? Well, as we have covered in the past, just to remind you, we have no righteousness at all. We don't bring anything to the table. On the day of judgment... If we are saved, it will be because through this wonderful, glorious thing called the great exchange, we receive the merits of Christ's life in our room instead. That is the first aspect of this exceeding righteousness that Christ speaks of here. Now, if it's true that you are in Christ, you're in union with Him, and you have received that righteousness by faith, there is now a new creation in you. You now have the power to radically obey the words of Christ. And finally, that righteousness, that exceeding righteousness of Christ, part of of that righteousness is that Christ will execute judgment on the last day against perfect righteousness for all of those who are outside of Christ. And so that is why we come every week, right? To learn more about the glorious Savior. (laughs) We come again to to repent, to believe, to keep growing, to keep learning about the one and only, the Messiah, 
Well, Christ continues to teach us what it looks like to be in that kingdom. And, uh, and as if we are really in union with Christ or in that kingdom, you'll be able to tell it. People will be able to tell. Even unbelievers will be able to look at you and they'll be able to tell that you are in that kingdom. In the book entitled The Call of the South, written in 1920, on the work of the gospel in the southern portion of the United States, the author, Victor Masters, records an incident that is chilling. He says that in the year 1900, Mikado, the emperor of Japan, publicly stated his willingness to issue a decree that would make Christianity the state religion of Japan. He observed the work of the Christian missionaries and he told his council that in observing the missionaries, he had seen that their religion had been more helpful than any of the other religions that were being propagated in Japan. Some of his counselors suggested that before that decree was issued, a deputation should be sent to the United States and Great Britain to measure how Christianity worked itself out within the borders of those countries that were sending the missionaries. They made notes and observations. They went to courts of law where they found justice was often defeated. They noted that in the markets of trade and industry, often reputed Christians were destroying each other in competitive business. They said they noticed something of a stench in American municipal government. And they returned to Japan and they wrote this in their report. That while it may be true that the lives of the Christian missionaries among us is the purest of any of the advocates of religion in Japan, and the principles of Christianity taught by them are right and most helpful to our citizens, the people of the United States and Great Britain do not believe and practice the doctrines taught us by their Christian missionaries. That's a sad story, isn't it? And that was in 1920. What would that delegation say today? What difference would have happened in Japan if the decree had been issued? Radical obedience will be seen and known. And it is seen and known in you. And today I want to, even though we come to look at a difficult text, these texts are just to mortify your sin and to help you grow in grace so that you can be like those missionaries that were observed over there in Japan. You will have the power to react differently when things happen to you in life. You will have the power to react differently, believer. If you are in union with Christ, you will react differently. Because this union, you have all this grace and peace and joy flowing from Christ as you abide in the vine that makes difference in how we behave and react in the world. And so let's just walk through these verses today and take a look at how it is that Christ is calling us to a radical obedience that is really radical. Verse 38, you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
So again, the fifth time, Christ is correcting something they had heard in the law that was, had been changed. We talked about how we have the tendency to mishear and misrepresent God's Word. So we have to be in it all the time. The first thing I'd like you to see is the Old Testament principle where this comes from. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There were three things this Old Testament principle were meant to do. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Number one, it was to restrain sin. Number two, this was only for judges in the court of justice. And the third thing, it was for mercy and protection. So let's look at that. First thing, it was to restrain sin. This Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If we look at Exodus 21, 22 through 25, this law we see stated, if, a, if a men strive, if two men are fighting and they hurt a woman who's expecting with a child so that she loses the child, it says that they shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband shall lay upon them. And he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So this was only for judges. If someone knocked out somebody's tooth, you were allowed to go knock out one of his teeth, not all of them. If you borrow your neighbor's rake and you break it, you go over to his house and you say, okay, what do you want me to break? Um, this wasn't meant to be used in personal relationships. This was meant to be in the court of law. It was to re restrain sin. So if somebody was hurt and they knew they were going to receive a stripe in return, that has a, de a deterrent effect right, upon behavior. An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is the law that's the basis for all law, really, throughout the world. In the United States, it was based on Blackstone's commentary and the Levitical law. Uh, if somebody uh, kills somebody, they were to be put to death. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But if you give somebody a 20-year sentence for killing somebody, what do you do? you lower the value of a life to 20 years. That's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what Christ is referring to here is a right and proper judicial principle that is good and must be enforced by the judges. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set on them to do evil. So if justice isn't executed swiftly and speedily, then it says that just opens up evil in society. So the Old Testament principle was to restrain sin. It was only for judges. And it was for mercy. How do we see that? Well, if you look at Exodus 21, how is eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, an act of mercy. Exodus 21, 
He that smites a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And then on down in verse 26 of the same chapter. And if a man smite the eye of his servant, so you've got a master who smites his servant. So if, what if one of you went to work this week and your boss came and punched you in the eye and you lost your eye? Or if the eye of his maid, that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And if he smite out his manservant's tooth or his maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. What's going on here? This eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is protecting those that are under the authority of stronger people from being injured and abused so that they were allowed to go free to get away from that person to protect them from further abuse. And so this judicial law was an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy that God ordains governments to execute law for the punishment of evildoers, right? Romans 13. And so we see that this was the Old Testament principle that he's referring here to and that, uh, and that there is to be justice executed speedily. Judges are not responsible for reforming criminals. A judge is responsible to execute the law. Period. Those that are stronger in this life will always oppress those that are weaker. And judges and law is to protect the weaker from the stronger. And in Deuteronomy 19.19, 19, the end of that was that then shall you do unto him as he had thought to, do, to have done unto his brother, so shall you put away the evil from among you. So the way you put away evil from among you is that judges in the court of law execute justice. And we know that uh, there's times that God executes justice when men won't or are not in a position to. And, it, you know, I think of Naaman's gallows, right? So Naaman was going to oppress Mordecai, built the gallows to hang him on, and, and then Naaman was hung on his own gallows. So there is this principle of an eye and an eye and a tooth for a tooth that resides in you. And the first reaction when somebody comes along and slaps you is what? To turn the other cheek, right? No. No. When somebody comes and slaps us, this natural principle of sin that's in you wants to slap them right back. This is where bullying comes from. That's why parents, if you get a bunch of kids, you even got to watch your own kids. Because your own kids have this principle of sin and they will bully the younger ones. And so we, we watch that and we discipline and we guide that uh, child along life's way and we teach them about that nature that's in them. The error, and I just want to emphasize again, that's a mercy. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is proper justice in the courtroom. The error was that this had now become used in personal relationships. And rather than being reserved for the courtroom where it belonged, now everyone, not everyone, many of the people in Christ's day were 
An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Tit for tat. Quid pro quo. You do unto me and I'll do it to you. And Christ wants to correct this because that's not the way of the kingdom. They had confused judicial law with personal vengeance. And so Christ corrects this in verse 39. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But I say unto you, I listened to, I found a primitive Baptist church online. I sent a message to the guy's name, Thomas Brooks. You can look him up on Sermon Audio. He is a good preacher. I heard him do a message on this. Just that phrase. But I say unto you, he did a whole message just on that. And it was good. And it really, it came from, he started right where Jonathan read in Hebrews 10 this morning. Uh, but I say unto you, who is this? It said this five times. Who's the one speaking? Who is this? This is the king. This is the king that descended and gave the law to Moses. This is the one that was at the burning bush. This is the, the Messiah who took on humanity, who appeared throughout the Old Testament. This is the one that after his resurrection in, in Luke 24 there, he joins up with a couple of disciples who he loved and starts walking with them, you know, and he's just wanting to help them understand a little bit more. He said, what, what's going on? You know, what's, what's wrong? You, you seem to be sad to me. And so they, they tell him, well, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, th we thought that he was the one. And yet, you know, our leaders murdered him and put him to death. And, and then, you know, Christ comes to a point and said, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses, right over here in the beginning, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. This whole book is about the Messiah. Everything in this, you have been given to show you the way of salvation, the way of hope, the one Messiah, the beloved of God. And He is speaking to us now. And what is He saying? He's saying, resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Christ is showing that they had taken this proper place of judicial law, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and they had used it wrong. And they were applying it in personal relationships. That, and in fact, isn't that politics today? An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Retaliation. I remember when Sarah Palin had success that the opposing party sent 40 lawyers to Alaska to destroy her financially. And we see that going on today, too. An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's the world. That's not the kingdom of God. We don't behave that way. But it's easy for us to see that what Christ is teaching here is true. And what we see going on in the world today just vindicates this book again, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I say unto you, resist not evil. 
but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So there's a command in this verse, and it's turn. Turn away from your natural sinful response when you're slapped. When you receive an insult. When you receive a lower than you expected job performance rating. Whatever comes to you that you think is infringing upon your dignity, our, we have to turn from our natural response, this, the sin nature response, and have a grace, a response of grace. Turn the other cheek. Our heart must learn the way of the cross. And this is the way of the cross. This is the righteousness that exceeds. When your personal dignity is attacked, we respond with grace and overcome evil with good. We are to put to death our desire to retaliate. We are learning in the way of the cross how we respond to insults and injury. Sin, the sin in us wants us to personalize everything. Put ourselves at the center of everything. We got to keep Christ at the center. Grace transcends this natural tendency since Christ is our center. Grace makes us realize, as Paul said there in Romans 7, there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. But there is a good Holy Spirit in us that helps us transcend and respond the way we ought to. Someone comes up to us and slaps us, or maybe they just interrupt us. Or a well-meaning brother or sister comes up to us to offer us a, a criticism. How do we respond to that? The imperative is turn when you feel that maybe flash of anger or resentment or whatever when that flash is. We have to learn to recognize that in our soul and turn from it. Each of you are souls on the way to eternity. And blessed be God, He's coming and teaching us how to live in such a way that we will be with our Savior forever. And that we give glory to Him in how we respond. So turn. Turn from self. Turn from natural sense of self-preservation. Take the criticism. Don't retaliate. When somebody brings us a criticism or a slight or something happens in our life, we need to take that as if Christ was slapping us and saying, wake up. I'm trying to get your attention here. Every wounding like that, we need to receive that as if it's coming from the Lord. And we need to listen to the criticism or whatever, the insult. We need to learn to pay attention to what's going on in our life, in our jobs, our families, our relationships, and seeing that the Lord working in all of those things is giving us an opportunity to have the eternal view. So someone comes up and insults us or slaps us, we need to see them as a soul that needs to be saved. We need to see that there's a way I can respond to the insult and injury to them and maybe bring them to shame 
That's part of true repentance, right? We talked about that. I was listening to a message this week. There's a historical reference uh, about Roman slaves that said they would rather receive 40 slashes on their back than to be backhanded by their master with public shame and humiliation. So there's something about... In Eastern cultures, honor and shame is a big part of the collective. And to be slapped publicly by the master backhanded was a, a way of shaming someone. And it seems like Christ knew that in the culture he was speaking to because he said, if they slap you, turn the other cheek also, the, the cheek that would be hit by the back of the hand. And so there's a principle here that goes through the rest of these verses that we see in Romans 12. In Romans 12 and 17 it says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. They slap you, don't slap them back. Don't, don't repay them evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live at peace with everyone. Don't avenge yourselves. Because it's written, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, and this is the principle I want you to get that we're seeing and what Christ is teaching us today. If your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. What does that mean, heap coals of fire on his head? It's an expression, a cliche, that means shame them. They're your enemy. They're attacking you, slapping you on the face. You give them good in return in such a way that it will expose their sin and bring them to be ashamed. And then that Romans 12 finishes in verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul just picks up the Sermon on the Mount and he's applying it there in Romans 12. And so this response of grace will expose the sin done toward you, resulting in shaming the person, slapping you, or whatever. When you show grace in the face of rage and anger, when you show true dignity and you don't retaliate, you heap coals of fire on their heads. You shame them. And so for those who love Christ, if you're in union with Christ, we will endure this. And uh, we understand... Also, that whatever we get in this life, if it's painful or difficult, what is that compared to eternity? How many are there in eternity now, in eternal torment, who would trade places to take a slap in the face or the loss of anything, the loss of a job, indignity? Losing a coat. So for those that love Christ, we endure. We don't slap back. We feed our enemy. We overcome evil with good. That is something that is not natural in this world. That's supernatural. And when we live like that, we are showing forth that light to the world and the salt, the preserving influence to the world. So how do you respond when someone knowingly or unknowingly has insulted your dignity? 
So the way of the cross is the right way. Those who have these spiritual graces of the Beatitudes are empty. They're mourning. They're meek. They're willing to learn from every situation. They're hungering and thirsting after this righteousness. They hate sin. I hate sin worse than anything. Because of how it gets in the way of fellowship in the sense of the presence of Christ. So this exceeding righteousness is the Spirit working in you a different way of living, which is glorious. And you give glory to Christ when you live like He did. Resist not. Resist not. So these are the teachings of the Word. In verse 40, it goes on and says, If any man will sue you at law and take away... Thy coat, let him have your cloak also. So here we see that the first place was in the area of personal dignity. And here he's dealing with your possessions. He's dealing with your possessions. So if anybody comes to you to sue you at law to take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And Christ here is speaking to children in the kingdom, right? There's a proper place to use the courts for lawsuits, but not here. 1 Corinthians 6, dare any of you have a matter against one another? And you go to law and the courts before the unjust, unbelievers, and not before the saints? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Can't you judge these little matters in life? That's what Paul's saying to the, the Corinthians. Evidently, the Corinthians were suing each other. People in the church suing each other. And he says, I speak this to your shame. That's shameful behavior. To get so caught up in stuff, possessions, that you're going to court to sue one another. He said, it'd be better off that you... Allow yourself to be defrauded. It'd be better for you to allow If they want it, let them have it. Because what happens is if we retaliate again in a lawsuit like that, Paul says that you're actually defrauding your brothers. Now what does he mean by that? Well, I, I think part of that might, that might mean if we don't bring forth fruits of grace in every situation in our life. And we bring reproach on the name of Christ in the community of faith. We're, we're stealing from this community. We're taking away from this grace and mercy that we've been given to share with one another. So we must beware of covetousness, Right? Someone steals from us and we respond. How do we respond as believers? Well, we respond and say, well, I guess they needed it more than I did. I had an opportunity uh, to experience this a couple years ago. I just bought uh, a truck and I was up because I had a computer bag that I'd had for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And I thought, well, I'm going to get me a new bag. And I went up to the Best Buy tomorrow and parked in the parking lot there and I had... The old bag was in the back seat, and I had taken out my computer and actually put it in my portfolio, which was right under the bag. So I went in, bought my new bag, came out, and uh, 
I didn't even have to throw that old bag away. Somebody smashed and grabbed it and took it. And all they got was a copy of a, a book called Almost Persuaded to Be a Christian and a thumb drive that had some sermons on it. And, uh, and then, you know, I had to pay $350 out of pocket to fix the window, but I got to testify to, to the guy that was fixing my window in his garage at his house about reading the Bible and about some things that he needed to change in his life. And man, he was receptive to it. And I think God must have sent me there for that. How do we respond when somebody steals for us? Do we see it as an opportunity? Or is it only a problem? We always have to remember, what do we bring into the world? What are we going to take out? Nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to be like Job when he lost everything. Whenever we act like that, again, we expose people and we expose their covetousness and hopefully shame them to repentance and a turning away from that behavior. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Say not, I will do so to him as he had done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. So don't say that. Don't say, well, he did that to me. I'm going to get him back. That's not the way we respond. And in verse 41, And whosoever shall compel you to go up a mile, go with him too. And again, the command in this verse is go. Go. Compel. This has to deal with your personal liberty. So we've talked about dignity. We talked about possessions. And now he's dealing with our personal liberty. The way of the cross and liberty. We are to go the extra mile. Isn't it amazing how many cliches we have that come right out of this text today? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. The Roman soldiers were known to take the Jews when they were carrying their packs and marching and they would just grab a Jew off the side of the road and force them to carry their pack for them. And I'm sure Christ, knowing that practice, you know, there in society, uses this. He says, if somebody compels you to go a mile with him, you go too. So at the end of the mile, he says, well, you can go home now. And uh, the response of grace will be, no, I, I can help you out a little bit more. I care. Seeing, seeing that, you know, you're tired and uh, you need some help, I'll, I'll be glad to help you carry this a little bit more for you. So we try to... Our response of grace shames them and shows them that we're not injured. You can't injure me. My faith can't be taken away. You can throw me in prison. You can kill me. You can't take away my faith and my grace and my hope in Jesus Christ. In Luke 23, 26, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of compulsion that's ever been recorded. Jesus Christ is on the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. And as they led Him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. He just coming out of the country, visitor. And they compelled him. They laid hold on him. 
And they laid the cross on Him that He might bear it after Jesus. One little verse there. What a picture we have. Christ was compelled to carry your cross so that you can carry His. When Jesus spoke this, He was speaking to a country of Jews that had compelled to pay taxes beyond what they could afford. They had no choice. Rome had all this military might to compel them to take away their taxes. I, I started working on my taxes Friday. <laughs> Pay your taxes. That's how we glorify God. Because the children are free and there's going to come a day when you're going to be free indeed, even from taxes. <clears throat> and so we are under the authority of God's ordained government. And if we are compelled to go a mile, we go two. That's what Paul said there in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. And those powers that be are ordained of God. Now there is a time to resist. When they try to compel us to go against this word, we, we don't go along with that. And if they stay in their lane and do what they're supposed to, which is enforce the moral law, then that's when society flourishes. So radical grace, radical obedience, is when we're compelled to do something, and our first response is, I've got a schedule. I've got a plan for today already. Radical grace means we know how to adjust for situations where we have an opportunity to serve and go the extra mile in order to show Christ's grace to another soul. What does doing going the extra mile look like for you and your servants of Jesus, servant of Jesus Christ and His bride? What about here? How, how are you serving one another? What does that look like? We don't have forced compulsion here. In fact, we live in a society that is still the most free society on the earth. And we need to be grateful for that. He finishes this section by saying, Give to him that asketh thee. That's your last... Each, each one of these verses has an imperative. And uh, give. Give to him that asks. And it's back to, sounds like personal possessions, right? Give to him that ask, and from him that would borrow of you, turn not away. Give. If someone borrows your car, do you worry about if it's going to come back with a scratch or mud on the seats? There was a man in the church uh, back in Texas I knew, and he, he would let anybody borrow his cars or anything. And, and he was blessed. In fact, I'll tell you, when Matt and Joanna was here and they were driving that car, he was a man that, he bought a new car just for them to drive for the three months they were on the States. And he was so giving and generous. God had blessed him a lot, but he, he gave so freely. He gave, he allowed a, a pastor one time of the church over there in Texas to, with his six kids to borrow his big RV. And it came back with dents and tore up. It didn't bother him a bit. 
He just took it down and had it fixed. I, I praise God for his testimony. Andy Hansen. Great testimony. So when somebody asks, we give. Isn't that what uh, James is telling us? You go into James, you look how much James is expounding upon the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody comes to the door and you say, well, go away and be fed and be filled. And you don't give them food and give them clothes, then you're, you're not obeying. Give to those that ask. Uh, Psalms 37, 21. The wicked borrows and pays not again. But the righteous shows mercy and gives. There's a difference in how we respond and the world responds. Proverbs 11, 24. There is that scatters and yet increases, and there is that withholds more than is meat, but it tends to poverty. So scatter. Cast your bread upon the waters. You have opportunities to invest in lives and people and to give, to help people, then give. We have a free hand. We hold on to the world loosely. We wear the world like a loose garment, ready to put it off when the Lord calls. George Mueller had this trait, this wonderful trait of the way of the cross, of self-sacrifice, of denial. He passed away on March 10th, 1898. And at the age of 92 years of age, thousands of people lined the streets in England to honor him. 2,000 orphans were in attendance. In addition to caring for orphans, he paid for the printing of Bibles and he gave away more than 250,000 Bibles. He paid for the tuition for hundreds of children to go to school. During his lifetime, in answer to prayer, he raised the equivalent today of about $129 million. And he gave it all away. And when he died, he only had a few dollars in his pocket. He set up a trust that continues to support missionaries around the world to this day. And they also hold the records for 18,000 children, orphans, that went through. And this is what he had to say in his testimony. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his taste, and his will. I died to the world, to its approval, and to its censor. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. What a testimony. I want to be like that, don't you? In fact, we hear in this today, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. This is the message of the way of the cross in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the message today. We will be dead to any self-avenging when our dignity is questioned or impugned. We will be aware of the natural reaction of self-defense and we'll use wisdom in how we respond. We will be aware of injustice, but we will react differently. You'll see your possessions and your liberty in a whole different light through the way of the cross. We will see every soul that we encounter in this life as a soul that is headed either to eternal bliss or eternal damnation. And we might be able to turn a slap in the face on its head 
or somebody's stealing something from us, we turn that on its head by grace and use it for an opportunity to shame them to the point that they would repent and believe. That would be our hope, wouldn't it? To be able to live like that. So then if a delegation from Japan came here today to McDonough and observed us, they would be able to go back and say, those people there are living changed lives. They, they actually believe the Bible. They're actually living like that. Well, that's a pretty tough teaching, isn't it? Turn the other cheek. That's hard stuff. But this kind of teaching is meant to knock you off your feet so that you might land on your knees. Radical obedience is produced in those who are in Christ in union with Christ who are being conformed to the image of Christ. The same Christ who was struck in the face for you. Luke 22, 64. And when they had blindfolded Him, they struck Him on the face and asked Him, saying, Prophecy, who is it that smote thee? His dignity was desecrated. His garments, the only thing He had was taken from Him and gambled for. And when they came to the place called Calvary, they crucified Him with criminals on either side. The perfect man murdered as a criminal between two criminals. And what is his response? Forgive them, for they don't have any idea what they're doing. They parted his raiment, cast lots. The people stood beholding. The rulers derided him, mocked him. And the soldiers also came, mocked him, Offering him vinegar to drink. Well might we cry out with the modern poet, My God, my God, why have you accepted me? When all my love was vinegar to a thirsty king. Well, that's the way of the cross. It's a narrow way. And it's a hard way. And there are many who hear this word. You know, Christ in chapter 13, He's saying, you know, this seed is being sown in the world every day. Some hear it and they don't even get out the church doors and don't even remember it. Some hear it and receive it with joy for a little while and then they don't remember it. There's others that receive the joy and respond and it looks like they've changed for a while and then the cares of this life and deceitfulness of riches come and choke the word no fruit no fruit of a gracious response like this no fruit but there are those who are in union with Christ who bring forth supernatural fruit unto perfection they are transformed would you like to be able to react like that are you a believer in Jesus Christ are you a repenting believer, radical obedience like this is impossible apart from regenerating grace. If you've heard this today and it's broken your heart, rejoice. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. And repent. And come to Christ. Christ who received all of these indignities 
and he did not respond the way they did. Peter talks about that also. He didn't respond like that. How do you respond? <clears throat> Have you trusted Christ? Do you know this Christ? Christ went to the cross and suffered indignities and injustices we can't even imagine so that we might receive of His righteousness and the power to live radical obedience to Him, full of joy and rejoicing all the day long. I pray that if you have never trusted Him, trust Him now. Come to Christ. Come to faith and repentance. Psalms 2.12 Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those that put their trust in Him. He will never let you down. Whatever you're going through, if you're like William Cooper and you're weak and suicidal, trust Christ. He can, he can heal your soul, strengthen your heart, and He can help you to respond with grace so that He gets the glory and you get the joy. May God bless His Word.